Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. In 1981, Dr. Linda Seeger created and defined the career of script consultant. She based her business on a method for analyzing scripts that she developed for her doctoral dissertation. And since then, she's consulted over 2,000 scripts, including over 50 produced feature films and over 35 produced television projects. Linda has authored nine books on screenwriting and has recently published a second revised edition of Writing Subtext, What Lies Beneath. This latest edition is what we will cover today. And Carol, I understand you and Linda share the same publisher, Michael Weesey Publications. Yes, Claire, we're fortunate to work with Michael because he makes us all feel like we're part of a family. And Linda, thank you for joining us. Oh, absolutely. Happy to do this and happy to be here. Well, this is quite an eye-opening book, I have to say. You certainly understand the art of subtext. So uh, today I want to cover um, avoiding on-the-nose dialogue, learning about subtext, unconscious subtext, writing subtext, and I want to cover the new chapter on love and discuss one case study with you. So let's start with how do we know there's subtext? Subtext is the true meaning that is underneath the words, and we often understand it because there is a tone of voice. For for instance, if we went to a dress shop and I tried on a dress and I said, um, does this look good on me? And you said, yeah, it's it's fine. I probably would not <laughs> buy that dress because even though the text tells me, sure, the subtext in your tone of voice and how you say that tells me, no, this is not the dress for me. So we hear subtext in real life many, many times. People say one thing and we say, I don't think that's really what they mean. They mean something else. Um, They make gestures. They do actions. There's something that just says, I don't really know what's going on. But I don't think that what I'm hearing is really what's going on. So it's the meaning beneath. And the subtitle of my book is What Lies Beneath. Right. What Lies Beneath. Yes. Oh, okay. So that's subtext. What Lies Beneath. That's a great description. Now, you quote Dr. Rachel Ballin saying, as children, we start our lives with text. And children are usually quite direct until adults teach them to be less direct. And since most of us have been taught to be less direct, uh, how do we learn to identify subtext in films? Well, any place we identify it is whenever we get that uneasy feeling. 
And Rachel gives the example of the little kid uh, who has an aunt comes that she doesn't like. And she's and mommy says, you got to kiss Auntie Ruth. And the kid says, no, I don't like Auntie Ruth. She's ugly and she smells funny. And then <laughs> as the girl grows up, she's told to do the subtext is, oh, I don't dare kiss you, Auntie Ruth, because I have a cold. And we say, mm. no, that is not the reason you're not giving anti-roots a little kiss. It's because you've learned to be careful of your t- your text, knowing that what's underneath the lines is what you really are feeling and what you are thinking. And the, the truth is we see subtext a lot in life, but we don't always tune in. So when I was writing the first edition of writing subtext, it was the first book on that subject, and I had to say, where do you find it? How do I identify it? How do I even write about something like this? Because it's all about those underlying meanings. So I, I just started looking in my own life and saying, where do I see subtext? And what did you find? Well, I found that I saw it in many, many different ways. Uh, I'll just give you one example. I had a friend many years ago who was in love with a guy named John, and she said, I think he's going to propose. And I said, why do you think that? She says, we were at a dinner party, and I said, I like this china. And John says, so do I. And I said, maybe he just likes the china. She thought it meant that because they shared the same love of the same China that he was really saying to her, we love the same things, we should get married. He was not saying that. And so subtext is often difficult to interpret. And sometimes you say, I don't know what's going on, but I know that what is going on is not what is going on on the surface. There's something (laughs) else happening. And um, sometimes, for instance... Well, let me give you another example of, of maybe subtext. I had a dinner party on Sunday night, and everyone came between three minutes and ten minutes early. Now, the, underneath that says they really were looking forward to this dinner party because many times if people aren't, they come 15, 20 minutes late like they are lagging. They're just not real interested in being there So, you know, it's the same thing. People who arrive late a lot of times, many times the subtext is, I just don't want to be here, so I am taking my time. Wow, that's an interesting concept. Well, Linda, when I watch films a lot of times, I'll see actors say, oh, sure, I'll do that, but they're shaking their head, no. Yes. Actually, if you watch the news sometimes, um, people who are the political commentators or even the senators or whoever you're watching on the news because they are saying one thing like they're saying yes this is a really great bill to pass but they're shaking their heads no yes yes it's yeah. amazing and so what does it yeah. they mean I, I mean they don't like well, it they but they have to say they mean do the no what what they usually mean is the under the surface. I mean, if they're saying yes and shaking their head no, what they usually mean is what the gesture and the action tell us. So mm-hmm. if in doubt, look if there's something else going on. For instance, if somebody said to you, um, look, I'm a really, really calm person, and underneath the table they're shredding their napkins because they're so <laughs> anxious or nervous, or... Yes. 
um, or if they said to you, I am a really, really peaceful person, would you stop doing what you're doing? <laughs> and you would say, what I'm going to go with is the tone of voice <laughs> and what they just said. Or my one of my favorite T-shirts, I, I don't have one, but I've seen it in the catalog, says, inner peace, come on, get on with it, I don't have all day. <laughs> so, so obviously the second part of that phrase is the real subtext is this person does not have inner peace even though they might be saying I do exactly all right well my son Rick was an actor and he said that one of the best parts of acting was to say one thing and look like you mean something else so that is subtext right yes and actors have to know subtext Writers need to, directors need to, because that's what makes a film or even our life very, very rich and interesting because there is this feeling of a subterranean meaning. You know, it can be very unconscious at times, but it's just under the surface. It's so fascinating. One thing I did when I was uh, writing the book, Writing Subtext, I started out by asking myself, what are the movies that I know have subtext, and can I analyze these and begin to see what the patterns were? And the three that I came up with, which I think are classics for this, one is Ordinary People, which won the Academy Award in 1980. Another one is an Alfred Hitchcock movie called Shadow of Doubt, and that probably came out in the 50s. And then the third one is if you've watched Cheers, the, the television series, it's, um, it's in season five and it's called Abnormal Psychology. It is the best example I've ever seen of subtext. And if you get that episode, Abnormal Psychology from Cheers, if you watch that episode, you will understand subtext. It's loaded with subtext. And, uh, it, and it's incredibly funny. You will laugh for 22 minutes. You will be laughing. Well, that's my next question: is how do actors express express subtext? So, well, they, can you go? Yeah, elaborate on that for us. Yeah. Well, they they need to think about what's really being said versus what they're saying, and then they need to say, think of what is the tone of voice that I am going to use. In order to, or the actions that I'm going to use in order to show what I really mean versus what I mean. Um, for instance, if you are, let's say you're dating a guy, you know, or you're doing a love scene, and the truth is you're really not very interested in this woman. So the actor would say, I'm going to sit with my legs crossed away from her rather than toward her, and I'm going to have my shoulder sort of blocking that person. And so my body language is going to tell me what I really think versus, you know, what uh, what I'm saying. A look at a movie like The Proposal is um, you've got the sense, you say, yeah, I know that they really are supposed to not extremely like each other, but the truth is they really do. And it's many times gazed by how does he look at her or when they have their first kiss, they, you can get this feeling of, oh, that was really nice for both of them and they separate and kind of find a way to diminish what they just felt. 
So a good actor is always saying what's really going on here, not a, not necessarily what is going on in the words. Right. What's really going on. If you watch the actor, you'll find out what's really going on. There was a lot of subtext in The Accountant, right? Have you seen that film? No, I didn't see that. That would be a good one for me to watch them. Yeah, because he uh, supposedly was autistic but um, and very blunt and direct, but still uh, there, was, uh, there was so much going on in there. I felt that was a good film. Well, let's go to un- unconscious subtext, please. Let's talk about that. Yeah, well, one of the things that's true, um, some people uh, say something and they mean something else and they know what they really mean. So they're saying, yes, you know, Auntie, I, 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 it's so nice to see you again, even though I, I know very well. I really do not like this aunt. But sometimes people do not know what is the unconscious. They have an attitude about something and they... Um, they say something and and you're listening to them and you say, I, I think this is all about your father and you. Is I, I, You know, you might be thinking, I believe you had a difficult relationship with your father. And if you say to that person, did, did you get along with your father? They say, oh, yeah, yeah, it was just great. It was, um, yeah, everything was fine. We had just a perfect relationship. <laughs> and you say, they don't know that their problem with their father is driving them to make decisions and to make, you know, I mean, all sorts of choices. And say they don't know. It's going to take years of therapy for the therapist to help them uncover what is in their unconscious. So we often have things within us that drive us, um, you know, to all sorts of choices that might even be very bad choices and we just don't know about them. Even on a national level, one of the things uh, to sometimes look at, for instance, is a country goes to war and they say, we're going to war for freedom and democracy. And you think, well, maybe that's what the leader believes. But I do notice that the place that they are going, you know, the country that they are warring with, has vast oil reserves or <laughs> huge rubber plantations. And there's just been a deal made about these oil reserves and rubber plantations. <laughs> and maybe the person honestly believes that, but the real reason is something that is totally unconscious. Or maybe they go, I, I honestly sometimes think that the Iraq War, the second one was because Bush Jr. was not happy with the way his father didn't complete Iraq War One. And so sometimes I think, well, maybe the second Iraq war was all about daddy. I don't oh. know. And and here's the thing Whoa. is that many times with subtext, you don't know. You ask the person, was this about daddy or was this about the oil fields? <laughs> and they said, no, no, it's about freedom and democracy. And I thought, well, you don't know. So I guess to get at the real subtext, again, we're going to have to have a lot of psychologists trying to look for clues and trying to figure it out. Now, in a movie, you want it to come out by the end of the movie. You don't want to just be saying, oh, what do they really mean? What was really going on here? So many times for a, a two-thirds of the movie, 
you might say there's something underneath the surface here and I'm beginning to get a feel for it. And then at the end you say, got it. I now understand what was really going on. Sometimes, like in ordinary people, it's the therapist that finally explains it and clarifies. Sometimes you in the audience have an aha experience and say, oh, I got it, I understand. Now I'm, um, I'm clear. So it does need to add up in a movie. The truth is in life, many times it doesn't add up and you're left wondering, or sometimes you have a feeling about something and then months later or a year later somebody says, oh, let me tell you about that. So, for instance, I've, um, there were two times in my life I met somebody that I just had this feeling like they were a bad person. It was a a feeling I'd never had before. I didn't know why I had it. It made absolutely no sense to me. One of these people was a minister. And a couple weeks later, somebody from that congregation said, oh, he's been having an affair with someone in the congregation, and it just came out, and he's being fired. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and I said, now, why did I have that feeling? And, um, you know, in another, it was something similar. I looked at the person and said, I don't know why I have, you know, I'm thinking, I don't know why I have this feeling. The person seems perfectly civil and fine. And, uh, again, a couple of days later, the person I've been talking to them say, oh, this is a really bad person. And they started oh explaining what this person did. And I said, isn't that interesting? You have a feeling you don't understand it. And I could have gone through life and never known what that feeling was all about. Yes, but I trust feelings. I don't know about you, but I find them to be most accurate. Yeah, and you can get it in a movie. Like sometimes somebody seems on the surface like a good person. You say, I don't know, I'm I'm thinking this is the antagonist or I'm thinking this is the criminal. Um, um, but I'm not sure why I'm thinking that. I just have a feeling. And a good writer has to know where the audience is going to be in relationship to this character. Because you say, I want to tip it later on to know that this is the bad guy. But I don't want to tip it too soon, but I want to make sure that when I say this is the bad guy, it all adds up. You can't just say, well, I just decide he's the bad guy. And the second half of the movie... And the audience says, no, 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 I don't believe that because you gave me this other clue that he was a really good guy. Now I think you were manipulating me. Right. Well, in the book, um, The Cat, which is one of my uh, interesting books on writing scripts, he mentions a film with De Niro where De Niro is a policeman and there's and they have scheduled they've invited a lot of thieves to a place to meet at, but it is a sting operation and one guy brings his son and so De Niro flashes his badge at the guy uh, and says I'll catch you later and the guy grabs his son and leaves so we start off thinking well he's a good guy he's a cop but he's a good guy he has a heart. And so this is what you're talking about, right? Setting us up with yep. a character early on. Yes, and and giving us some kind of it can be a subliminal clue 
for that that later we add it up. Or sometimes you have a character who just seems very neutral. Say, well, I, I just accept him at face value. And then when you realize he's not a good guy, you say, well, yeah, the, the writer kept and the actor kept me neutral enough that now I can see I could have gone either way with uh, my analysis of him, and it makes sense. In a movie like L.A. Confidential, we're two-thirds of the way through. The police chief turns around and shoots one of his detectives. And you go, wow, that, that was a surprise. And you say, well, but I never had a clear attitude, whether it was good or bad. I didn't think of it one way or the other. The guy was neutral, so I will accept that this is in character. And yes, he was the corrupt guy, and he hit it really well. But I will mm-hmm. accept that shooting. Right, that was a that was a great film. I I loved that. Well, tell us how you work with filmmakers and how they can reach you. Well, my website is lindasager.com, dot com, and Sager is spelled just like Bob Seger, S E G E R. And I work with writers, producers, directors by work on scripts. So I'm a script consultant, and my job is to identify, analyze, and help solve script problems. Now, sometimes somebody's writing a mystery and the clues don't add up, so it's my job to say, this is the clue we're missing. No, you have five great clues. Um, You're missing a number six, so we don't know how we got to number seven or eight. Here are some possibilities for clue number six. Or this character is, um, you want the character to transform and to grow, but they aren't starting to do a transformation to well into the, you know, middle of the movie. you got to start that transformation earlier. So here is how you can start it. Um, so I work on story structure problems. I work on character, on expressing the theme, on what images, what cinematic images will reinforce this. I look at the dialogue, whether it's on the nose, does it have subtext, what is some of the subtext you might have. So um, I write a report. After I read the script, I write a report, and I also make notes on the script. And I have a lot of different services. They're, They're inexpensive to very expensive, so people can choose how much detail do you want me to do. Um, and I've been a script consultant, as you said, since 1981 and worked on thousands of thousands of scripts. And I work with the whole realm from very inexperienced. I have clients who are on their first script, and I've worked with Academy Award winners and, um, you know, with very experienced writers as well. So it's the whole gamut. This is wonderful. So if someone has a script and uh, they they need uh, coverage is what is what everybody really has yeah, to walk away with, coverage. Not, uh, it's actually not coverage. It's consulting. Coverage is when somebody writes a synopsis of your script because mm-hmm. you're going to give it to a producer, and maybe they write a paragraph to just say, well, the characters need to be strengthened, but otherwise I think you should consider this. Um, my consulting is when somebody says, I'm going to really help you with the problems and help you craft and move this script from a good script to a great script. So that's, oh, that's, that's kind of the difference. 
that's the difference. Make it a, from a good script to a great script. So that's what you do, and that's uh, consulting over coverage. Got it. Yes, yes. Big difference, big difference. Well, let's talk about how do you write subtext? Well, most writers start by writing the text, and then they begin to work and massage it and write and rewrite and write and rewrite some more to find out how can I actually now make this subtextual. So let's take, for instance, let's say that um, a woman sees a guy across the room at a party and he's by the table with the appetizers and the wine and champagne and she's like, boy, that guy is good looking and the, I, I, oh my gosh, I got to find some way to engage him in, co- in conversation. So the text is she goes over to him and she says, you are so good looking, I am so attracted to you, is there a chance we can go up? So that's the text. But she's not going to say that because that's the text. So instead she goes over and she says, oh, look, at they have my favorite wine. That wine is so delicious. It is so tasty. So now you're starting to get into subtext. She's choosing delicious and tasty, and she said us about the wine. We in the audience know she is not talking about the wine. She's talking about (laughs) him. But then you start rewriting, and you say, well, I wonder if it's, um, do I want to use the word wine or do I want to use champagne? Hmm. That French champagne is so bubbly and sparkly. It just makes me feel so alive. Okay, maybe I like that. And I want to make sure to say French. I mean, champagne is French, technically. But I want to get French. And maybe she says, oh, I've been to Paris. What a romantic place. I say, oh, no, wait, wait, romantic. We're in the first meeting. Let's not use romantic. What a sex. No, I can't say sexy place. What a sensual place. It just makes my senses come alive. And as she says that, she runs her hand down the side of her face to the top of her sort of low-cut blouse. Okay, so now you're starting to see is that the writer is going to go over and over. And is it Chardonnay wine? Is it it champagne? Is it red wine? Is it um, ginger ale? (laughs) I mean... What is that? And and what's the you know, what are the words she's going to use? Or does she pick up the um chicken thigh and start eating it slowly? Or does she slurp the the oysters? You know? I mean look at look at the uh eating scene in the movie Tom Jones and you say, This is not a scene about eating. This is a seduction scene. So, um the writer will keep massaging that. And they, I, uh, uh, one of my friends who's won an Emmy Award for sitcom writing, I said, well, how often do you rewrite? And she says, well, I did this scene 22 different times this morning. You know, So when people say, well, if you're a good writer, it just flows, and you say, no. The difference between a good writer and a not good writer is the number of times they rewrite the scene to get all that resonance and all that richness going on. It doesn't come the first draft. No, you're absolutely right. In fact, some people say the, at the first draft, you're only 7% finished. 
Yeah, that's probably a good percentage. I I often say if you have not rewritten a sentence at least ten times, it's probably not good enough. You're going to just go over and you hone and you... And word choices, for instance, is what word am I going to use that has the most resonance? So, for instance, if some guy wants to take the woman out to eat, does he say, let me take you to a little French buffet around the corner? Does he say, let me take you to a restaurant, a supper club, a bistro, a dive? Hey, I got a favorite dive around the corner. Or there's a greasy spoon over there that I just go to a lot. (laughs) If you say, what is the word that has the most resonance and connotations? So certain words, you just say that word is very flat. It doesn't, you know, let's go to the restaurant. Say, eh, I don't know, maybe there's a better word that has more meaning underneath that. I mean, a bistro, it might be small and cozy and intimate and French. You say, well, I kind of like that French resonance because France means romance and candlelight and all of that. Um, it, it's cute where I come from originally northern Wisconsin they have supper clubs they're restaurants there's nothing different about them but they're called supper clubs and certain cultural areas have different words and you say well the resonance can kind of put me into the context or the location but a supper club sounds a little different than restaurant it sounds a little more exclusive it isn't. It's just a restaurant. But it sounds like that. So you say, maybe there's a time I want to use the word supper club instead of restaurant. Yes. It's all about words, right? You, in the beginning yes. was the word. It's all about words. Yes. And you just did you just did a resonance right there. You quoted from the beginning of the Gospel of John. Yes. You just did a you just did a subtext thing and people who are religious would say, Oh yeah, in the beginning was the word. I, I have resonance with what that said because it is more than just like words are important. Yes. So you see how it, you added a layer to what you said by how you said it. And many times people will do that. You know, they'll say, Well, you know, as they say, to be or not to be, that's the big question, isn't it? <laughs> and then they give a big sigh and as <laughs> they take out and clean their gun and you say, Wait a minute, this sounds a little suicidal. I think I better step in <laughs> because they just quoted Hamlet and Hamlet was one very depressed guy <laughs> with a lot of problems. <laughs> so yeah. Right. You know, you just you choose you know you you choose everything very carefully. Yes, I don't think people realize the amount of time, energy, love, and everything else that goes into writing a script because it's total focus to get that script to a um, to an Academy Award nominee or even one of the top uh, ten films of the year, right? Yes. Yes. It, writing like anything is a is an art and it is a craft and um it's funny that many times people say, Well, you just sit down and write and you say, Well, you don't just sit down and do brain surgery. You obviously prepare and practice and have a lot of experience before you're ready to do it. And writing is like that. The great writers 
they write and write and write and and they probably started writing as a child and they have years behind it now now that does not preclude talent talent is great but all of this stuff of craft and knowledge and understanding and preparation and experience that is all extremely important exactly it all it, it is now, in the book, Writing Subtext, you talk about using the subtext for character and understanding the backstory. So let's talk about the film Sideways. Yes. Isn't that a terrific uh, film? And yes. one of the marvelous things, uh, many times people in si- Sideways will remember the scene where Miles and Maya are sitting down and he's talking about Pinot Noir. And he, we think he's talking about Pinot Noir. It's really a love song, love, uh, <laughs> love scene. But he says about, you know, the flavors are so brilliant. And he says, you've got to work with it and pull it, uh, pull that out. You know, and he says, it's all like Cabernet, which is a survivor. It can grow anywhere. He says, no, no, Pinot Noir, it has to be carefully, carefully nurtured. But what he's really saying is, I am one of those special, I'm like the special grape that has to be nurtured and coaxed out all my wonderful qualities. And he's really saying under the surface, and Maya, would you like to coax out my wonderful qualities? But it's about Pinot Noir, so it's wine. And sometimes what happens in a movie is this great writing that someone will talk about something and you say they're really not talking about that. That's just the surface thing. And so the example I meant about um, meeting somebody and talking about the French champagne, you say you're not really talking about French champagne, you're talking about him. So um, Miles is talking about himself, not the Pinot Noir. But it's a, I mean, it's a marvelous movie with that kind of undercurrent going on. Uh, Pinot Noirs, yes, it's uh, it's such an unusual wine. That supposedly after that movie came out, the sales of Pinot Noir went up and the sales of Cabernet Sauvignon went down <laughs> because he said, I don't know, Cabernet is so prosaic. <laughs> Suddenly nobody wanted to buy Cabernet anymore because it was too prosaic. So it's a great movie to look at. Are you, are you there? Carol, can Just you checking. Hear? Can yes, you hear? there you are. Yes. Oh, good. I thought I'd lost you. Or perhaps no. I had whacked so eloquently that... <laughs> No, I love that film. I just rented it and saw it again a second time. And it really has held up over all these years. And I'm so glad you said that because I was sitting there thinking, is he talking about her or him? You know, and I had to think. Um, and I love films like that that make you think. That was great. Yeah. When I when I show that clip in uh, class on screenwriting, before I show it, I just tell the class, I said, now remember, he sounds like he's talking about Pinot Noir, but he's really talking about himself and watch the scene for the subtext. And it is so cute because the class starts to laugh. And you say, it's not like on the surface. It's comedic. But when you know what you're listening to, you just kind of chuckle with that, that laugh of recognition. Yes, 
that was so that was a perfect example. Um, well, let's go on with subtext showing denial attitudes and cover up. Yeah, is when when people say, um, well, like if I said to you, do you think this makes me look fat? And you said, no, no, it's it's okay. <laughs> you you're denying what what the truth is is you know you're you're telling me something that on the surface is not quite true but I could pick that up or um somebody like for instance let's say that um we were in the kitchen and let's say I'm with a guy in the kitchen and uh he goes to reach above my head for a glass from the top of the shelf and I put my arms up and I cringe and I pull back. You might say, what is really going on here? Well, maybe I was abused as a child. And you say, oh, this person is used to being hit. When somebody starts getting close and raises up their hands, they're preparing to be hit. And so I see an action, and if I said, oh, oh my gosh, are you all right? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. Oh, yeah, I'm so sorry. I just pulled back a bit. He said, no, no, no. He said, did you have a bad childhood? Oh, no, no, no. Everything was great. <laughs> Perfect. I loved my father. <laughs> you know, right. So, so there is there is a lot of times the cover-up, which could be conscious or could be unconscious. Like, I'm not going to tell you the truth even though I know the truth, or I honestly don't know the truth. So I'm going to tell you something and... Um, if you said, well, I, I don't believe it, I'd say, oh, no, no, it's truthful. It's a little bit like um, if somebody ever says to me, uh, your check is in the mail, I'll, I'll send you the money, and you can trust me, I'm so honest, I get really, really worried. <laughs> honest people don't have to, honest people don't have to tell me they're honest. They just send the check. And so... So, you know, there's like, like, for instance, one of my business practices is when people send me the script, they also send me the check for the work, and then I start the work. And over the years, what I learned was um, about 85 or 90% of people are honest, and the other 10%, you know, will the check will get there whenever they feel like sending you the check. And I said, my problem is I don't know the difference between the 10% and the 90%. And I said, <laughs> I just, I said, I just presumed it. everybody was nice and honest and that is not the truth of the, of the world. And so I said, well, I don't want to be the one who has to judge character and figure out what the subtext is. I just want to do the work. So, you know, I figured out the best way to do that and just whether you're honest or not is... I can still work on your scripts. So um, there are these things where we might call the, the cover-up or the denial is to say, I don't know what that means. And I have more important things to do than to spend my whole day ruminating over the true subtext. So, you know, and, and there's a lot of people who conduct business in a way that they are being cheated a lot. And the reason they're being cheated a lot is they are not understanding the subtext of the person who's cheating them and they haven't adjusted their business practices. You know, or a lot of people who made make bad decisions on relationships. So you think, you know what, you're not reading the subtext. And we can maybe get it wrong a few times, but after a while, 
say, we've got to become a better judge of character and know when somebody is lying to us or cheating on us and not be in denial about what's really going on. Exactly. Well said. Oh, my gosh, you're just a wealth of knowledge, and I really appreciate all of the information you've given us today. So let's go back and tell people how they can find you again. Uh, Right. Uh, You can go to lindasager.com, and that's my website, or you uh, if you th- you have a script or something you want me to work on, um, my my email is linda at lindasager.com, real easy. And my books, writing subtext, and my other nine screenwriting books are on Amazon and Barnes and Noble online. So I'm real easy to find. If you can remember Linda Sager, you can find me. Oh, great, Linda. And what about those videos? Some of them are on your website. Some I found on YouTube, and they are terrific. So how can we get those? Yeah, you can go on YouTube. There's a lot of different videos of of me and my seminars on YouTube. There's also some videos for sale, DVDs, of um, you know of some of the seminars and some of the information. And um, so again, you can always Google it or go to my website. Um, Find it, or if you have any trouble with any of this, just email me and I'll make sure you know exactly where to go. But it should be pretty easy. Thank you so much, Linda, and thank you, Claire, for uh, hosting the show. And, Linda, I hope you will agree to come back in the future and let's cover screenwriting. Yes, there's a lot to talk about, so I would be very happy to. It's been just very much of a pleasure to talk to both of you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us, and thank you, Claire. Okay, bye, bye, Linda. Okay, bye. Be well, everyone. Be well, everyone. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.